Okay, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. If you have a Bible, please go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are in um, our sermon series, He is Alive. This is actually um, is our fifth week uh, where we started back on Easter Sunday, um, celebrating Jesus' resurrection from the dead, um, looking at when Jesus met the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and his life's transforming encounter with Jesus. And then what we've done is we've been working through this chapter in the Bible that that same Apostle Paul wrote. And what he wrote uh, is the longest um, treatise on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that we find in our Bible. So we thought it would be a good opportunity after Easter to look through that. And we did um, the first week after Easter, we looked at verses 1 to 11, where we found out Paul said that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was of first importance to his message, to the Christian message, to the Christian faith. The fact that Jesus died on a cross, was laid in the tomb, and then rose bodily from death, and the fact that he is now alive is fundamental to the gospel. And he's talking to the church in Corinth, and he's saying it's of first importance of the message I brought to you. It's why the church exists there. This message I proclaim that you responded to, this is vital. And then we moved on to verses 12 to 19, uh, where we found out that there were those in Corinth, in the church in Corinth, who were denying the resurrection from the dead of believers in the future. They said, well, maybe it's all right for Jesus to rise from the dead, but we're not going to rise from the dead. We're just going to die. To which Paul points out um, how ridiculous that is by uh, posing a what-if question and basically saying, if, Jesus, if you're not going to rise from the dead, neither, neither, neither did Jesus. Resurrection didn't happen. And then what if there was no resurrection? What it would look like? And we found out it would be a horrible state. It said that our faith would be empty and false and futile and would be lost and would be pitiable. It was just the worst situation. And then last week we got to verses 20 to 28 where we found out that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was only the beginning for us believers. Paul said, Jesus rose from the dead, therefore one day we will rise from the dead in the future, and ultimately all the kingdom and all authority and all power be given to Jesus and be pulled in together into the Godhead, into the Trinity, and he would rule and reign in all. So we've got first importance, then Paul talks about actually what it would be like if it wasn't there, but it was, and then he rams home, this is how it's going to work. Jesus is going to rise, then we rise, and then we're going to rise, and it's all going to come together in God. And so what we're going to do is now pick up, pick up the passage in verse 29, if you found 1 Corinthians We're now in verse 29, so it says this. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. All right, let's have a dive in and see what Paul is saying today. Big idea. What you believe about the future affects how you act in the present. What you believe about the future affects how you act in the present. Or you could flip that around and say, how you act in the present reveals what you believe about the future. 
How you act in the present reveals what you believe about the future. And in this paragraph, Paul makes it uh, clear that the resurrection of the dead is no small deal in terms of the Christian faith. It is vital of a belief in Christ's resurrection and therefore believers' resurrection in the future. Because what it does, if you don't believe that, if you want to, it undermines uh, morals and character and values and how you act now. That's what he's going after. That's what he is attacking. And actually, the, the passage ends with almost an exhortation to holy living. So actually, what you believe about the resurrection affects how you live a holy life, a godly life. It affects the decisions you make here and now, which ultimately reflect on your faith in God. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through this passage. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at worship. We're going to look at hardship. And we're going to look at holiness and how the resurrection shapes and affects them. Number one, worship. Okay, verse 29. You've got your Bible. We're just going to go through the passage. It says this. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay. It begins with otherwise. Otherwise, it means it connects it to immediately what we've read before, which was last Sunday, where Paul is talking about the order of the resurrection, everything ultimately being brought back into God and him ruling and everything being all in all in him. And he's saying, actually, that's, this is connected to that. So what he's going to talk about now through this passage is connected directly back to that. And he's talking to people, he says. So he mentions that twice. And there, so he's talking to the church and he's talking to a particular group within the church, this group who have been denying the resurrection, who've been spreading this false teaching by describing these people. And he talks about baptism on behalf of the dead. All right, so this should make us stop and go, what? What? Because he, he says this twice in the passage. And what it means, if, you, if the plain meaning of the reading of the text is actually that some of them are being baptized on behalf of the dead, but this causes us problems because we have no clue what that means. There is no historical evidence, whether in the New Testament or from extra-biblical sources, about what this is. Scholars and uh, theologians and commentators are stumped to the point where, I looked this up in several commentaries, and I found that there are between 30 and 40 different interpretations of what that means. Bottom line, we don't know. We do not know who is being baptized, on behalf of whom, and why, and what the results were. We know nothing about it. What we do know is that Paul knows what he's talking about, and so does the church, because he doesn't bother to explain it. He's just making a comment, like, if you believe in the resurrection, then why is this happening? And so everyone is in the know, except us. So Corinth, the Corinthian church is in the know, Paul is in the know, and so it's like, but what we do can glean from the passage is there is a clear contradiction in Paul's mind from these people who are saying there's no resurrection from the dead and the practice that they are working on, which is some sort of baptism of the dead or what that means, whether that's baptizing on behalf of believers who've died or members of family who haven't, he didn't make a commitment so people get baptized. We just don't know. But Paul is saying there is an inconsistency in your theology and practice. If you're going to deny the resurrection from the dead, why are you doing that? It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. There has to be a, a connection between what you believe and how you act. And when it comes to baptism, just to spend a moment on baptism, baptism is um, a Christian ordinance um, that was demonstrated by Jesus. He got baptized when he came to earth by John the Baptist. He then commanded his followers 
the church to be baptized and also that the ones who would come after them. And if we look through the book of Acts, we see that was the um, practice of the early church. You were believe, You believed. Jesus is Lord, he is alive, and then you got baptized. It was an act of obedience, it was an act of faith, and it was an act of worship. as recognition of who God was and what he had done in your life. And the imagery of um, baptism, when you've ever seen it, where someone goes down into the water, and they're completely submerged, it is an image of dying, an image of death. So they go and they die to their old way of life, and then what happens? We pull them out, we don't leave them there too long. pull them out and that is the image of resurrection they're coming back to life a new life in Christ the old life has gone it's died you've died to your old way of life that's common New Testament language you are rising to a new life in Christ and it also it, it, it kind of mimics Jesus resurrection where he rose from the dead but also it prefigures our resurrection at the end so all this imagery is pulled together in baptism that Paul writes elsewhere in his letters, like the letters to the Roman church. And Paul is saying, well, if you're, gonna, if you're not going to deny resurrection, there's no point getting involved in this silly baptism stuff because they don't match. They don't connect. And the point he's making is that what you believe should affect your worship. It should affect how you worship and how you act and how you respond to God. And there were people in the Corinthian church who were saying there was no resurrection, but yet they were doing practices in line with it. And he's saying it doesn't add up. The resurrection should shape your worship and your theology and your practice should match. And that's important. So that's what he talks about worship. Then he goes on to talk about hardship, verses 30 to 32. He talks about the tone change now. He's talked about people. And if you notice in your your Bible text, he now uses um, I and we. It suddenly becomes very personal in what he's talking about. And he says, why are we in danger every hour? Effectively, what that means is on on a daily basis I face the reality of death Paul is making this point if there's no resurrection why is he doing what he's doing why is he the apostle to the Gentiles preaching the gospel planting churches traveling around and enduring hardship of all forms and if you're not familiar with the apostle Paul and kind of his life and what he did it'd be worth having a a read of the book of Acts particularly the back end where he kind of comes to the fore as a character in that but he wrote in another letter to the same church years later he wrote and he describes some of the things he had gone through for the sake of proclaiming the good news that Jesus is alive and he says this he says He said, "Um, with far great labors, far more in presence, with countless beatings and often near death. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the lashes, sorry, the 40 lashes, less one, 39 lashes, five times, do the mass. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from river, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from that, there is a daily pressure on me for the anxiety of all the churches. This is the life Paul leads. So when he talks about why we're in danger every hour, this is kind of what he's thinking. This is in his thinking. He's not thinking the train was late this morning. You know, how I suffer. He's not thinking. He's a whole nother level 
for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's making a point, a strong point, saying, if I did that and there was no resurrection, what I'm doing is crazy. I would be certifiable. Someone should section me and keep me safe because I'm a danger to myself. He goes on, he says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. And this language here, the commentaries tell us he's making almost like an oath, a solemn oath to the church in Corinth. And he uses that word brothers and he's saying, my pride is in you as a church because through um, Christ working in me, you have been birthed as a church. I, I, kind of, I was there when you started. And he's boasting in them. He has pride in them because of what God has done in their life. Not self-exalting pride, but Christ-exalting pride. And saying, actually, because Jesus has worked in you, because he's alive, I can take great pride and satisfaction in that because the message I proclaimed is truth and it's born fruit and you are the evidence of that. And the result of that and his passion for that means he dies daily to see that come about. He faces all those hardships to see um, a church birth. And then he goes on to, from sort of more general to a very specific thing. He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Ephesus sorry. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's basically talking about a situation. Paul is believed to be in Ephesus, another city, writing the church the letter in Corinth. So he's kind of going from Turkey, do we understand, to Greece. The letter's going across the sea, and he's describing the situation he's facing. He is facing great hardship there, because he's trying to plant a church there uh, in Ephesus. And we read a bit more about that if you read the book of Ephesians. Uh, that's there, and he is under great pressure he's the, the image he uses like fighting with wild beasts which I can imagine being utterly terrifying requiring strength and effort to survive and that's what it's like trying to plant a church he's saying and he says on a human level humanly speaking if there's no resurrection from the dead what do I gain and what's the answer nothing if there's no resurrection of the dead, what he gains is absolutely nothing. There's no point going through what he's going through. There's no point facing the hardship, facing the trials. And he makes that comment at the end. Uh, what, would the, what would be a better thing? Well, let's just eat, drink, and tomorrow we're going to die. If there's no resurrection, let's just focus in on now. Let's consume ourselves with the things of this life. Let's live self-indulgent, selfish lies of just happy ambivalence. Because you know what? Tomorrow, pff, probably die. So let's just consume everything we've got now. And what he's doing there is he's quoting Isaiah 22. Then he's trying to make that point. If I'm doing all these things I'm doing and there's no resurrection from the dead, there's no future, there's no hope, what I'm doing is ridiculous and empty and I might as well just live a self-indulgent, narcissistic, hedonistic life. And it's all kind of over. But because of there being a resurrection from the dead, it shapes Paul's hardships and later, um, in another letter, in the second letter, he describes his hardships as light and momentary because of the hope that is revealed in Christ and his resurrection from the dead and soon our subsequent resurrection from the dead. And so I'd love you to reread that passage in 2 Corinthians where he's talked about beaten and shipwrecked and without food and say, light and momentary, light and momentary. But that's Paul's attitude. Because he knows there's something bigger. This life is so short while eternity well, is eternal. And that's what he's living for. That's what he's focused for. And the resurrection is shaping his hardships and what he's facing now in his ministry. Third thing, final thing. Verses 33 and 34. He says, do not be deceived. 
Bad company ruins good morals. Okay, so now he's moved. He's, he talked about these people who are the ones proclaiming the no resurrection. Then he talks about I, about all the things he's gone through. He now, the language turns to your, and he speaks three imperatives to the church in Corinth. And the first one is do not be deceived. Stop being misled. Stop deceiving yourselves. Stop thinking and going the wrong way. And he quotes, interestingly, he quotes a current, um, a current playwright and poet to their time that they would have known about. And we know very little about this person. They believe, theologians believe it was Meander, his name was, and he's, he's quoting from one of his lost comedies that we don't have now. There are many ancient plays and poems that we have because they've survived down the, the centuries. This one we don't. <laughs> but apparently it was so well known, he doesn't even have to kind of put a citation on it. He just has to say, bad company ru- ruins good morals, and they'd know what he's talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like if I said to you, may the force be with you. You'd everyone be like, I know, I may not like it, I, may not, I know where it's from. It's one of those cultural things. We go, like, oh yeah, yeah, I get that. And he's saying, but he's got a point in here, bad company ruins good morals. A few hundred years later, Benjamin Franklin said a similar thing when he says, those who lie with dogs, get up with fleas. Those who lie with dogs, get up with fleas. And he's basically saying to them, you are hanging out with people who are proclaiming a false message and a false gospel and basically telling lies about Christ and the resurrection. And if you do that, that will ruin you. You will eventually be affected by that. You will eventually be led astray. He says, do not be deceived. Do not go down that path. Do not succumb to that teaching. Do not get involved in that. And then he goes on with the second imperative. And I kind of, if it was written in modern language, it'd probably bold underlined with the kind of um, exclamation point, but he basically says, wake up, wake up, sober up is another way of doing it. It's from your, there's their drunken stupor. Come to your senses. Can you imagine the one, have you seen the movies where the guy's a bit drunk and they want to sober him? What do they do? They ram the head in the sort of, in the, the water, the ice water, and they pull him out and say, are you, are you there yet? And they go in again and sometimes it's a wake up. Focus. Give me your attention, he's saying. You are being deceived. You're being led astray by a false gospel, a false narrative. And then he goes on to his third and final imperative where he's really specific. He just says, stop sinning. Stop sinning. What he's basically saying is that these people who are proclaiming this message, they are ruining you. They are leading you astray. And ultimately, that is going to end up with you in sin. Offense to God. Sin is just the catch-all term uh, the Bible uses for where we fall short of God's standards. Where we sin and we, we break his commands. Um, we fall short of what he's doing. It's also the word for the inward bias we have to, away from God and to the things of the flesh and the things of this world. And we don't want to honor God. We want to make good things, God things. And we, we, we do that. And he's basically said, stop doing that. Stay away from that. Because what you believe about the resurrection is shaping your holiness. It's shaping your life. It's shaping how you live in this world. And when you succumb, when you imbibe those things, they pull you away. And he, he, he says, these people, these some, he says, for some, so this goes back to the people he's talked about at the beginning of the passage. He says, they have no knowledge of God. These people denying the resurrection, they're saying they've got no knowledge of God, which is a damning indictment on people who proclaim to be part of the church. So you actually don't, you don't even know God. 
at all, yet you're proclaiming this false message. So there's the passage that we've got today. Quick summary. So Paul has outlined um, the effect of what it means now present if you are denying the resurrection. Denying the resurrection in the future then means you deny the resurrection in the past of Christ. And what is the outworking of that? And Paul is basically saying it will affect your life. It will impact your worship, how you worship God. It will impact how you face life and the, the reality of hardships that come into our life day by day. And ultimately, it will affect how you act in terms of sin towards God and Paul contrasts that with his own life and saying actually he's trying to follow Jesus he's proclaiming the resurrection of the dead both of Christ and of us in the future and he says and that is shaping his life how he endures hardship how he pursues God in holiness and that is the example he wants to set to the church in Corinth and so we come back now what does this mean for us what does it mean for us Paul's point is that belief affects behavior and particularly uh, wrong belief Unbiblical belief leads to ungodly and sinful behavior. And we have to challenge ourselves of our own beliefs. We have to challenge ourselves what we believe and how is that shaping our behavior. And Paul says in the other letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. And what he's saying is have a good look inside to see how you're living. Is, is what you believe lining up with your practice? Or is false belief shaping your practice? Look at your practice and say, what does that reveal about what you believe on the future? And so what we're going to do today is examine ourselves and have a little look at those things. You're welcome. Glad you came this morning. Okay, and we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at worship, we're going to look at hardship, and we're going to look at holiness. First one, worship. Worship is an act of faith and it's an act of obedience and it shows our devotion and our love for the Lord Jesus and all he's done. Lord Jesus, second person of the Trinity, God the Son, he came to earth um, as promised, lived as a man, lived the perfect life, died in our place for our sin, rose bodily from death, ascended into heaven, sent Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity to be with us, birthed the church, and we now live lives accordingly when we repent in faith and follow him. And that's what we're to do. And one day in the future he will return, judge all mankind, wrap all things up. And that day is only drawing closer. And so what does this mean for our worship? Well, the first thing, repentance and faith. It all begins there. We are to repent, which means turn away from our living life our own way, acknowledge our sin and put our faith and trust in God. If you are a Christian here, you have done that. That's fantastic. That's a wonderful thing. But the challenge is, are you living a life of that? Martin Luther, at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, wrote his thesis and nailed it to the church door in Wittenberg. And the first one is says that God deems for Christians that all life is one of repentance. We live a life of repentance, constantly turning away from living our own way and putting our faith and trust in him, living towards him. And so if you are a Christian here, are you doing that? Are you regularly repenting of your sin, putting your faith in him? Are you getting into your Bible and praying daily, which is the word of God to us, which reveals all this to us that we can learn on? It transforms us. It shapes our thinking. Are you letting that shape your thinking? We've got a, um, another session of uh, the Real Law School coming up soon. We've had a, a couple recently looking at prophecy and going deeper with prophecy. They've been outstanding. 
I've been there. I had nothing to do with it, but I, I attended. They've been brilliant. Learned loads from that. We've got another one coming up looking at salvation uh, and baptism and the Holy Spirit and what that means in the life of a believer. That is for all of us to attend who are Christians here, to learn and grow in that. If you're not a believer here, I want to encourage you to make the decision to follow Jesus, to put your faith and trust in him. Because without that, your future is empty. It revolts in nothing. And you don't want to face a holy God without an advocate to stand before you and plead your case. And that's who Jesus is. So you need to make a decision to follow him. What about baptism as an act of worship? If you are a believer and you've responded in faith, the next step is to get baptized. We have a date coming up, 10th of July, where we're doing some baptism. If you know you haven't been baptized as a believer, it doesn't matter where that took place. I know I wasn't baptized as part of this church. That's fine. But you respond. You need to get baptized. We'd love to chat with you, help you with that. Make sure your actions line up with your beliefs. That's what we are to do. What about Sunday? Worship here as part of your commitment to God is to be committed to his people, the church. That's what you got saved into, God's global community of his people, and that is then worked out in expressions in local congregations like we find here, all over the world. They are wonderful things. We are meant to be a part of God's family, actively working it out. And if we have made our commitment and faith and put our trust in him, we come here and become part of that family and we join a local church and we join the congregation that is and that's so we can work out much of what the Bible teaches about loving and caring and sharing with one another it's where we sharpen one another and we grow to one another it's where we sit under God's word and are transformed it's where we come together and we worship and we pray and serve and love and care one another and also the community around us and seek to proclaim the good news to them so I want to challenge you with a question how do you treat God's church is this an afterthought the irony is talking to people who are already here. I'm aware of that, but I'm just trying to challenge the bits you can't see. How do you feel about Sunday? How do you feel about it? Is this something that you fit in because you haven't got your hobby on this morning? So I'll go to church. Or your kid's hobby because you can't say no to them. I won't be at church worshipping with God's people growing. Some of you need to make some decisions about your life and what you're doing and what it means. And your, your actions tell me exactly what you believe. And some of you need to check that because otherwise you're just in line with what Paul would say. Why are you doing that when you believe this? Baptizing on behalf of the dead, whatever that means. I think sometimes God might make it vague so we can't pin it on everything. It becomes this big catch-all. We've got to do that. What about giving financially? I did an update last week on how we're doing. Is, do you recognize, is your belief, everything I have belongs to God? Everything. Not just your bank account, everything. Your life, your breath, your family, your car, your home, your job, even your mental faculties to just process this awesome sermon that is coming at you is all from God. But God demands something from that. So I've given it to you. You need to steward it. And look after it, which means you have to respond in faith and obedience. How is your giving? Is it something, does God get your first fruits or your fag ends? Be challenged. Think about it. Does your belief line up with your practice and vice versa? Second thing, hardships. Jesus said repeatedly that life would be hard. That life would be tough. He said, take heart because I've overcome the world. And I'll be with you always by my spirit. And I will give you the grace and mercy you need. 
But he never said this life would be easy. He even tells, told us that we are to die daily, just like Paul wrote in that passage. And if we look um, at the example of Jesus, followed by the 12 apostles and then people like Paul and then the early church, it is a life of hardship and suffering as they seek to live out what it means to follow Jesus in this world. And we also have been through that. We've been through the pandemic. There's the war in Europe. There's the cost of living crisis. Everyone's been affected by that. And then on top of that, we have our own personal things that we're facing. We might find difficulties in family or work or health or emotional or mental or relational things that result in anxiety and pain and stress. We all have that in life, all have hardship. But what you believe about that affects how you respond. And the danger is, as a Western, entitled, um, comfortable society, we think that's what God wants. Because it's the air we breathe and the culture we're in. Hashtag blessed. That's what that means. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. We have a privilege of living in a relatively stable government society. And that's a good thing. And that's to praise God. And we should pray for our leaders. But that isn't all God's interested in. And the big question for all of us is how we handle hardship and adversity reveals what we believe about God and his message. And broadly speaking, what I've observed over the last two decades of doing this and being in pastoral ministry and caring and leading God's people, and there are two responses to hardship and suffering that come into people's lives. One of them is people run to God and his people, and the other is people run from God and his people. And they're totally diverged. And what they do is they reveal what people really think and feel about God and his message. And I've seen people witness people go through incredible pain and suffering. From thumbs that we could objectively say were smaller things to some that we can objectively say were massive, life-changing, horrific, painful events that you wouldn't want to wish on anyone. And you can see the two responses worked out in front of you. People who run to God despite their suffering and people who run from God in their suffering and the response shows what you believe I remember being told in a youth group many moons ago uh, the, the, the image which still makes me smile now is that Christians are like tea bags they said and you're like mm. because you only know how strong they are when you put them in hot water our faith is tested by the trials that we face and the, 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 the things that come on us. And it reveals us as believers. It exposes us on what we do in those times. Do you run to God and his people? Or do you run from God and his people? Because I've seen people who things have come on online and the first thing they've done is just drop the things of God. Drop the people. They blame God. They, and they're facing pain. It's hard. It's horrible. You've ever been in pain. You know what that's like. But I've also seen people do the same, and what they've done is they've run to God and his people with the hurt and the pain and the suffering there in their lives. And the resurrection of Christ from the dead and our future resurrection needs to shape how we face what's happening now. Paul called them light and momentary afflictions. And he was beaten five times with 39 lashes, which was enough to kill a man. And he, did, he went through it five times, and then the shipwreck and all the other things. How are we processing the hardships of life because even if you're in a situation now where you're like, actually things are going all right, it won't last, said the encouraging preacher. It won't, because something's going to come up. It just is. And that's just, that sucks. And we try and insulate ourselves from that. But actually, that's just life. 
And in those times, that's when we need Jesus, and it reveals something to who we are. Last one, holiness. If we believe that God is holy, it should affect, it should be a response for us in that. And Paul simply said, stop sinning. Stop, stop sinning. And he says, be careful who you hang out with, because who you hang out with affects your life. And the question that we need to push ourselves as we examine ourselves, who are you hanging out with and feeding off? So there's a difference there. You come, we can hang out with people, we have work colleagues, we have just life. And, but who are you actually feeding off? Because he says, good company, no, bad company ruins good morals. And he says, company, there's the idea of being together. He's being together. And he's saying, who are you feeding off? When you meet up with people, where's your diet coming? Particularly with believers, if you're with other believers. But do you meet up with other believers and never talk about the things of God? Never do that. That never comes up. We just happen to have a common kind of community. So we hang out together and friends and our kids are friends or whatever. But if you never talk about the things of God, what are you doing? Are you talking about when you do talk about the things of God, are you just running down God or his church or his people or anything. Oh, they're not good enough. They're not meeting money. They're not doing that. They're not doing that right. They're not doing that. If that's the puke that you're just pushing on people, get away from them because that will affect you. And it comes out of poor belief and poor understanding of who God is. Change the conversation. Change the conversation. Be someone who's known to build up and encourage to inquire about how you're doing with God, how you're doing with reading your Bible. Can I pray for you? I love you, I'm for you. What can I do? Just encourage people. You're doing great, keep going. Because that is what we do, because that's what's going to lead to holiness. Because Paul says what you believe and how you act, that will affect your life. And some of you now know, even through this, that the conviction is God is on you and there is sin in your life and you know you need to deal with it. The great news is Jesus is here to deal with that right here and right now. Because the Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not, not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you've got it all there, 1 John 1, 8 and 9, to deal with this thing. So you know there are things in your life. And so what I want to do to end, time to end, you mind the band coming back up? We're going to pray, and we're going to make a response now. What Mel brought this morning I thought was brilliant in terms of God's here right now by his grace and he wants to look you in the eyes. And I want to call forth a response from you now to what he's been saying to you through his word. And maybe through the worship time before. And I want you to make a response. And just so we're clear, because it's that kind of morning, no response is a response. But actually, what kind of response are you going to make now for your life, for your family unit, for, for whatever you're responsible for? your workplace situation, your friendships, your kids, anything. How are you going to respond to what God has been saying this morning? So do you want to stand? And I'd love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. So just want to close your eyes. If it helps you, open your hands or just kind of whatever it needs you to do to sort of engage personally with God. The good news is he loves you, he's for you, he wants to see you grow, he, he, he is all over that. He knows everything that's going on, every hurt and pain and, 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 and suffering and trial that you're going through, he knows all about it and he's with you in it. Those three Hebrew boys who were thrown in the fire, God didn't get them out of the fire, he went and jumped in. 
I'm here too. I got you. And so I just want to pray now for you guys and you do a little business with the Lord. And it's between you and him and nobody else. But he knows and he's watching and he wants you to respond. Lord, I want to thank you that you are good. I want to thank you that you want good for us. I want to thank you that you want to call us into deeper relationship with you. I want to thank you you want to call us into deeper worship and deeper holiness. Lord, God, you want to teach us what it means to follow you in the face of trials and suffering and pain that we will all face regularly in this life. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who rose bodily from death and that based on that hope, we can look forward to the one day we will rise too in you. Hallelujah, that's good news, Lord God. But as we stand here now, Lord, we want to confess our sin to you where um, our behavior doesn't line up with our beliefs. Or the other way around, our beliefs are wrong, which is affecting our behavior. And if you know what they are and you know what those things are, just confess them to God now. Just say, this is it, and I'm sorry. Be really specific. Lord, I want to thank you that when we confess, you forgive us and you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can stand before you righteous and holy as God's people. Lord, that is such a wonderful thing. Lord God, we ask you, fill us with your spirit now that we may walk in your ways, that what we believe about you shapes our life. And the, the false things we believe about you, may they be put aside and fresh ones come in, that our life may be a resurrection-shaped life. For your glory, Lord. And God's people said, Amen.